see you and looking forward to uh, starting the new series in Genesis 37. Uh, If there's one thing that I've learned over the years as a Christian is that God uh, is difficult to second guess. It's always difficult to second guess. I I find that with Bible reading as well. Every time I read the Bible, uh, he corrects my presumptions and my natural way of thinking. He is God of the unexpected. Uh, While he's all-powerful, and there is no power in all creation that could stop him or match him, his power is made perfect in weakness, as Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12. Now, what kind of power is that? God often acts in a way that is counterintuitive to our wisdom, and especially the things that we can assess with our own logic and our rationality. He chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world to accomplish his plan. God's unexpected ways means that often it is hard for us to assess what he is doing with our bare eyes. Uh, We often feel like he has lost the plot in our lives. Think about it. Uh, Who would have thought to defeat the power of the devil and the judgment of death in the execution of an innocent man in AD 33 outside Jerusalem and the preaching of the news about him to the world? I mean, mean, to use the preaching, it sounds more technical and powerful, but uh, who would have thought to defeat the power of the devil by Jesus dying on the cross as a criminal and people telling other people about his death? People like you and I, just just telling others about how he died for you and my sins. Who would have thought about that? Well, one implication of God's unexpectedness is that God can always be trusted, even when you and I cannot work out what is going on. We can trust on one thing. God is much bigger than you and I can ever predict. Even when everything in life seems to have lost the plot, even when you are very convinced that you've lost the plot, well, God hasn't. God never loses the plot. The faithful God is working out everything according to his plan, and that is to bring us into eternal fellowship with him in new creation. And if you'll remember, this has been the story of Genesis so far. Uh, I don't know uh, when the last time you read the book of Genesis was. I asked uh, people at SBF to raise their hands and no one raised it. So no one had uh, read Genesis for a while. Um, if, if that is the case with you, it uh, uh, might be a good idea to read the book of Genesis in preparation for this series. Kevin Kim, who has done that, tells me uh, that it only takes about three hours to read the whole Genesis. So if you spare you know, half an hour over the week, that, that, that's the book of Genesis for you. Well, what has been the story of Genesis? If you haven't done the revision... To put it simply, God overcomes every dead end caused by human sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They they did a wonderful thing, didn't they? They somehow managed to single-handedly bring God's good creation into disaster. That was the achievement of first humanity. The generations of Adam followed the footsteps of their father and almost extinguished the whole of humanity in God's judgment of the flood. If it wasn't for God rescuing a remnant through the righteous Noah. Yet, even Noah failed, 
the generation after Noah builds the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God. There is first human unity, you know, United Nations moving together, gathering together in rebellion against God and receives God's punishment of permanent division. And ever since then, uh, we all know and experience and witness the story of humanity fighting against uh, each other. However, yet again, God chooses a man named Abraham for a new start in Genesis 12, uh, and God makes a promise to Abraham. Uh, The promise that he made to Adam and Eve, even as they deserved death, God said to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, one day, one of your offspring will crush Satan's head, and I'll make you fruitful again. Well, God makes that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, Three promises. God will make uh, his name great by giving him many offspring. God will take him into a land, and God will bless the whole world. That's a salvation language. God, God will save the whole world through him. However, time and time again, Abraham puts the plan of God in jeopardy. You know, first through his marriage to Hagar, and then by foolish Sarah to Abimelech. The generations of Abraham is not any better. It, it, it's, if anything, it gets worse. Isaac's two twin sons are fight against each other from mother's womb and virtually destroy the whole family if it wasn't for God's intervention. But time and time again, God overcomes every dead end into the lives of these sinful and foolish people to accomplish his plan of salvation. Well, that's kind of what is to come in Genesis 37 to 50 as well. Uh, In the ensuing narrative, we see this God at work again. We're going to meet a family, as Tony said, uh, that is badly dysfunctional. We we thought it couldn't get any worse than uh, Esau and Jacob. Well, now there there were two of them. Now there are 12 of them. They are weak and wicked people who set, it almost seems like they've set their heart, their life's goal, just like Adam and Eve, is to destroy God's plan. But God proves that he is greater than human weaknesses and wickedness. can be trusted and trusted in all situations, even when we cannot see, even when evil seems to have triumphed. And Joseph really, if you want to get a, um, summary statement as you uh, start of Genesis 37 to 50. I think summary statement is Genesis 50 20, uh, where Joseph says to his brothers, You meant for evil, but God meant it for good, so that through it he'll bring salvation to people. And my prayer is that by the time we finish Genesis 37 to 50, I believe we'll be here for nine to ten weeks, uh, that, that we can all grow in our faith, that we can confess with Joseph that God brings salvation in spite of our weaknesses and wickedness, and that God is in control, watching over your life, watching over my life, watching over the lives of those who are in Christ Jesus, even when life seems to be in the pit, or even when it feels like you're on the way to Egypt as a slave, that God is for you in Jesus Christ. It seems like a simple statement, but... Genesis, there are 50 chapters in it. There's a reason for it because I think, again, that's difficult for us to believe. Natural human tendencies that we want to control. We want God to work in our ways. But we need to go through it with God and taking time and, and with God's work that we'll be able to confess like Joseph. 
So in order to get there, let's turn the story uh, from 37.1. The generations of Jacob. Uh, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. The mention of his father's place of dwelling reminds about Jacob's family identity, if you have forgotten. Again, uh, this is a promised family. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, as you may know, whom God promised to give many offspring, make into a great nation, and through whom to bring blessing upon the whole world. And that promise to Abraham that God made is now passed on to Jacob. Uh, Turn with me to chapter 35, verse 11. Just two chapters. And and, and God reassures that promise to Abraham, just because Abraham's dead doesn't mean that it's forgotten. Uh, God reminds Jacob, now now you're the one who inherits the promise. Uh, 35, 11. Uh, So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and that's a very interesting word there, a company of nations. Uh, that word company literally actually means church. Uh, a nation and a church of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Jacob's dwelling in his father's land tells us that God's promise to Abraham has come true in some measure. Right? He's got 12 sons. He's dwelling in the land that Abraham dwelt. However, they have yet to become a great nation, nor have they become a blessing to the whole world. Abraham and Isaac are dead. Jacob is now an old man. So God's promise of world blessing, the hope of universal salvation, lies with the generations of Jacob, his 12 sons. That's an important thing to remember. It's not just about Joseph. It's all about his 12 sons. Uh, When we recognize what is at stake, a family that will bring blessing to the whole world. Uh, That's the family that we encounter. That's what is at stake. We expect to meet a role model family, don't you? Uh, the family of love and mutual respect, uh, families that is liked and looked up to by everyone around them, parents lead by examples, children behave sensibly, uh, perhaps a little bit like Huey's family. Uh, you can hear the inferior complex of a poor neighbor, can't you? Uh, but, but against the natural expectations... God's promised family looks nothing like a blessed family. You know, if anything, it's a dysfunctional family in the mold of the Simpsons or the other family who lives next to the neighbor, where nobody gets along, everybody abuses one another, and family problems brew everywhere. Okay, verse 2, Jacob, uh, uh, Joseph, sorry, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. You know, sounds peaceful so far. But the complex family situation comes to the fore straight away. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives. We are reminded of the troublesome past family history. Jacob did not have ideal marriage life. Uh, Filled with sibling rivalry between his two wives, Leah and Rachel, they wanted to win their husbands over by giving him many sons, and Jacob somehow ended up having four wives and 12 sons who are all half-brother and step-brother with one another. And the relationship between these uh, these brothers were far from friendly. Uh, Look at the second half of verse 2. And Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Now that's an interesting uh, interesting thing to think about. Uh, Joseph gets a lot of flack for this. But uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, was Joseph being a malicious, spoiled little brat or... Was it because his brothers were bad that Joseph actually had to bring a truthful report about them to his, his father? 
Uh, we're not explicitly told in the passage, but I think, given the track record of his brothers, remember, if you're reading Genesis so far, chapter 35, Reuben rebelled against his father and lied with one of his father's wives. Levi and Simeon, number two and number three son, they violently killed the whole village in anger and revenge. It probably was not very hard for Joseph to bring a bad report about them because they were bad. I mean, the question is still whether Joseph should have brought that report. Uh, But what did the father do about the situation? Verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a special robe of many colors. Uh, Instead of disciplining his children, instead of dealing with sibling conflict, uh, what he did was that father makes the issue bigger by blatant favoritism. Uh, He buys one of his sons a nice suit from Hugo Boss, and everybody else gets a clearance item, you know, Boxing Day sale. But but further, in the ancient setting, uh, the suit was more than aesthetics. Uh, The coat also indicated Joseph's special status, marking him out as a manager, not a worker. It's probably one of the reasons why he wasn't with the brothers in the first place, pastoring the flock later on. Well, how did the rest of the brothers feel about all this? Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So much for a promised family, right? This family going to bring blessing to the whole world? God, good luck. If brothers cannot have peace, where will peace be found for humanity dispersed in the judgment of Tower of Babel. Can God work through this family to accomplish his plan of salvation? And the answer is, as we, as we find out, God can. Yet again, he works in unexpected ways. It's going to take another 13 chapters until we see it clearly. But he starts to work. Verse 5, now Joseph uh, had a dream. And he tells about it in verse 6. He this dream that I have dreamed. Uh, behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. The second dream seems to reaffirm his dream. The, the, the dreams come in pairs in Genesis, this narrative, affirming that uh, the surety of it, uh, and it, it builds on it and expands. In verse 9, behold, I have dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me or worshipped before me. These are unusual dreams because every time there has been a vision or dream in the book of Genesis so far, it was followed by God's uh, explanation of the dream. However, uh, Joseph's dream is not accompanied by God's explanation. So so Joseph, throughout all this time, uh, must have had to live by faith as well, you know, when he was going to Egypt, when he was staying in prison and all that. But even without the full explanation, the basic gist of the dreams seems to have gotten through to everybody. After all, they are descendants of Abraham, and they're not unfamiliar with visions and dreams. They would have heard from their grandfather, you know, Abraham, Father Abraham, what happened? You know, how did God speak to you? And they they never heard about it. And verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? Uh, Joseph's brothers got the point. Joseph was claiming to have been chosen as God's ruler and savior of his family. 
Enough was enough. It was annoying enough that his father favored him. It was annoying enough that he was uh, talking behind their back. Now he was claiming a divine message about his special status. Now we need to sort out the family pecking order. That's what happens. Again, we see that God works in unexpected ways, always choosing counterintuitively to human customs. It seems to be a pattern in the Bible that God always chooses those whom the world does not esteem very much. And as a consequence, God's chosen leaders are repeatedly rejected by his own people. Remember, God chooses unimpressive public speaker Moses. And he is rejected and accused by his own people. But he is chosen to defeat Pharaoh. You know, the world's great ruler. I remember God chooses young shepherd boy David, who was his older brother's errand boy. And he defeats Goliath. And God chooses Jesus of Nazareth, born in a humble major, suffer a humiliating criminal death on the cross to accomplish the most remarkable and unexpected victory. Such is God's ways. Such is God's wisdom. And God is at work again by speaking through dreams that Joseph will become savior of his family and the world. And by the time we reach the end of Genesis, Joseph's brothers will also see this, and we will see that Genesis 37 correctly outlined the future and demonstrate that God is in control. At this point in time, however, uh, God's choice of Joseph is rejected by his brothers. Uh, just it has been, always been the case in, in the Bible's history, and also it is the case today. Uh, people mocking the crucified Messiah and, our, and your preaching of the gospel. How can Jesus save the world? And Joseph's dreams intensify the brothers' hatred toward Joseph even more. Uh, there is a little wordplay going on there. Uh, Joseph's name um, in Hebrew uh, very romantically means God gave me another one. Um, uh, it means add more. And verse 8 literally translates, So they, Joseph, more hatred against him for his dreams and his words. Verse 11, uh, they were jealous of him. Uh, with the rising tension, the narrative takes us out into the field, and you get the sense that the story is not going to turn out very well. A again, if you have been reading the book of Genesis, you'll remember what happened the last time uh, brothers who didn't get along went out to the field together. Remember what happened? Uh, Genesis chapter 4, 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. But the story continues. Look at, look at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, it, it seems incredible that Jacob could be so blind to the true feelings of his sons towards Joseph. But no doubt, uh, the brothers were very careful not to let their fathers uh, see their hatred and jealousy. Uh, that's what 
bullies and abusers do. They always manipulate people. They act fine in front of others, but simmer uh, resentment and talk gossip and plan revenge behind people's back. Well, uh, whether Jacob knew the resentments of his other sons or not, however, uh, Jacob had a legitimate reason to worry about his sons. Uh, what would that be? A uh, careful reader may have picked it up. Uh, where are they pastoring? At Shechem. Uh, what happened at Shechem before? Uh, Shechem was where Jacob's daughter Dinah was abducted, and in turn, Jacob's two sons, Levi and Simeon, committed a terrible act of violence in revenge back in chapter 34. But equally surprising here is, however, Joseph's response. Right? Joseph would have known that. He's a smart guy. He would have no doubt known about the danger of the long. Uh, it'll take about 80 kilometers journey on his own, given that he's going to the enemy territory. And that, also, he didn't have a good relationship with his brothers. Uh, the, the word well, it, uh, see if it's well with your brother. That's the same word for shalom, peace. See if it's peaceful with his brother, emphasizing the point he doesn't have peace with his brothers. Uh, did Joseph go down with heavy heart? Well, once again, the Bible does not tell us the state of Joseph's mind. But one thing we can see for certain is that Joseph was eager to obey his father's word, even if it entailed hardship. He does not yet know that his obedience to the Father will bring him much suffering, taking him down even into the pit, to the place of the dead. Yet he's a son who loves his father and he wants to obey his father. Was sent by the father, Joseph willingly takes the dangerous journey to Shechem, ends up wandering, uh, wandering around dangerously near the site of the massacre mentioned earlier. Uh, very curious uh, verse, verse 15. Unexpectedly, he is approached by a stranger. Uh, look at verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Uh, what a strange encounter, don't you think? Uh, who is this man who suddenly appears out of nowhere, finds Joseph, he happens to have heard Joseph's brother's conversation, and directs him, like, like you know, ancient, uh, accurate GPS. Uh, from a secular worldview, if you didn't believe in God, just a mere chance. But for those who have come to know God of the Bible, again, unexpected ways, we cannot ever predict it, but God is guiding all things. Uh, Genesis narrative is emphasizing that point again. The God of the unexpected was overseeing the whole affair. He's not far away. He is directing even a stranger to be at the right time, at the right place, and directing Joseph to his brothers. Uh, taking the direction from the stranger, Joseph goes after his brothers. That will be his uh, life's mission. But as Joseph work, walks over the hill and his brothers see him from a distance, uh, things begin to go wrong. Look at verse 18 and listen to the brothers' conversation. They saw him from afar, and before Joseph came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of these pits. 
Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Sent by the father, Joseph came seeking his brothers, but the brothers were seeking his life. Uh, it's interesting to observe, once again, their resentment towards his dreams. Uh, he comes this dreamer, literally this master of dreams. Come now, let us kill him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. Uh, his brother seems to have taken Joseph's dreams more seriously uh, than we would think. Uh, otherwise, they would have dismissed Joseph as being uh, you know, somewhat immature in telling them such dreams. Or they may have resented his arrogance, but he has always been that kind of a guy. Or they could have written it all off, simply as ambitious little brother's wishful thinking. But they've thought uh, the dream of the dreams as more than that. I think they were convinced that God was speaking through these dreams. If that is the case, what they do next is not simply acting against Joseph... It's not only acting against their father who loved Joseph, but also they are acting against God's plan. Familiar story. It's amazing uh, when you read the Bible how many times God's people set themselves against God's plan. They don't work with God's plan. Uh, They're not even neutral, but they often work against God's plan, but yet God works in spite of their rejection. Well, here you see uh, the brothers, uh, this uh, uh, dysfunctional family, united. (laughs) What are they united in? Uh, United in their rejection of God's chosen ruler and God's plan. But God's overruling work starts with Joseph's uh, two brothers, who gets mentioned here. First is Reuben, verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Uh, Reuben was the eldest brother and the natural one to take the lead. Uh, But of course, we have already met him in chapter 34. He's in real trouble with his father, having slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Uh, So perhaps uh, he wants to patch things up with his father by rescuing uh, his favorite son. So he persuades the brothers to simply throw him into the pit uh, without laying hands on him. Uh, He half succeeds. They listened to him when Joseph came to his brothers, verse 23, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors. The robe gets really emphasized, doesn't it? It's emphasizing his status, his status as God's chosen one, his status as the father's chosen one. Uh, They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Uh, You may have um, uh, been thinking this already, but it is difficult to read Joseph's story without thinking of words spoken of Jesus. John 1, 11, the Apostle John says, he came to his own, he came to his brothers, yet his own people rejected him. The tragedy of what is happening is highlighted by the repetition of the word brother. If you read Genesis 37, you'll notice that brothers comes out everywhere. It's ironic. In a chapter where it's all about brothers, well, What kind of brotherhood is this? So much for a promised family, having thrown their own brother into the pit, uh, and pit in Old Testament word for grave. Without water, uh, they sit down to eat, have their lunch, as if nothing happened in verse 25. 
Well, into this tragic scene, an unexpected caravan of Ishmaelites came through. Again, unexpected, but perhaps Ishmaelites coming through just at the right time. God is guiding over and controlling the whole affair. Uh, to one brother, whom we'll meet in more detail next week in, uh, 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 in chapter 38, uh, this seemed to be a perfect timing. Uh, he was, ironically, a God-given opportunity to get rid of Joseph without actually killing him himself and also even to make a little profit. So listen to what he says, uh, Judah's words in verse 26. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. The irony is hard to miss, as if selling their own brother as a slave to Midianite slave traders were any better. This is just a wicked rationalization of their guilt. Uh, Washing one's own hands uh, of the guilt, as Pilate did when he handed Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. Uh, So with the 20 pieces of silver, Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt. Well, when Joseph trudged off down the road to Egypt as a slave, his brothers probably thought that they were at last done with him. Perfect crime. That's what Reuben thought when he came back and found that Joseph was no longer in the pit. Uh, that's what Jacob thought when he was told, uh, when he was deceived by the made-up story. It's funny, uh, the irony is hard to miss again. Uh, what was Jacob famous for? Deceiving his father with animal clothing. Now he gets deceived by uh, his sons in the same way. But, but that's what Jacob thought as well uh, when he saw the blood on the coat that he made for his favorite son. That's probably what Joseph thought as well. My life has finished. Evil seems to have mastered over God's promised family. Instead of trusting God, they yet again trust in their own knowledge of good and evil. Instead of being united to bring about blessing of the world, they are divided and there is no peace. The growing hatred, the cruel violence, heartless lies... We cannot imagine what must have gone through in Joseph's mind to be thrown into the pit by his own brothers, listening to them, speaking about how they're going to kill him, being pulled up, expecting death, then to be delivered into the hands of the Gentile slave traders. What a traumatic and terrifying experience. When all seems to be at lost, however, God was at work. Is this all right? All right. I'm, I'm going to ignore it. Uh, Matthew's Gospel. A few thousand years after Joseph's story, Matthew's Gospel tells us of another Joseph who went down to Egypt to preserve the life of the chosen one, who will be the savior of Israel and the world. Jesus Christ, who was rejected by his brothers, handed over into the hands of the Gentile sinners, yet through his obedient death on the cross, brought blessing of salvation to the whole world. There was another Joseph had to leave his home, making a dangerous journey down to Egypt, yet God bringing all things for the good of those who love him. And I pray that this will be an encouragement for those of you 
uh, whose life seems to be in the pit right now. Or your life may feel like it's still on the way to Egypt. Uh, Perhaps betrayed by the loved ones or persecuted for being obedient to God. Uh, With thousands of questions in your head without any sign of answer from God. And the answer may never come in this lifetime. The answer may not come until we get to heaven and meet God face to face. But be assured, as Joseph has found out, and through Joseph, God has kept his promise in our Lord Jesus Christ, that even when we cannot comprehend, we can trust this God. We can trust this God even in the pit. And we can trust this God even on the way to Egypt. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your infinite goodness, wisdom, and power. And we thank you that with all the power in the world, that you choose to to work your power for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we can trust in you. Help us to live not by sight, but by faith in your Son, who loved us and who gave himself for our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.